0: Our dear Heavenly Father, we look forward to what you're going to do in our midst and in our lives. May your spirit be working mightily, O Lord, um, in us and through us today. Uh, We look forward to what you're going to do, dear God, and we commit this service to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message this morning is Prayer in a Time of Crisis from Nehemiah chapter 1. It'll sound a little similar at the beginning anyway to what Dan preached last week, but I think you're going to notice there's quite a bit of difference. But all of us at one time or another will face a time of crisis in our lives. And as Dan mentioned last week, uh, these crises can come in many ways, many forms. Uh, Some of you have experienced the crisis of the loss of a loved one in the past year or two. Uh, others of you are facing a health crisis, even as we are here gathered together this morning. There are those in our church who are facing health crises. And then there are the financial crises many will, in, will encounter, especially during the times that we are living in today. And then there are the financial crises, or the, and then there are the national or international crises, such as wars and pandemics, as we've experienced over the past couple of years. But the question is, where or who do we turn to first uh, during one of these crises? When things are going pretty well, it's probably easier for us to say, well, of course I turn to the Lord first. But what about when that real crisis hits? Is it the Lord you turn to first in prayer? Or do you fall back on your own resources or your own wisdom or your own wiles in dealing with these times of difficulty. Well, if you're like most of us, it's probably a mix of the two. Faith-filled prayer alternating with times of doubt and anxiety, and I can certainly attest to that. Back in 2012, I as well as my family faced a crisis situation, uh, much like a family in our church is facing right now. Uh, Early in that year, I was told that I needed to have open-heart surgery uh, to replace my malfunctioning aortic valve or else I would go into congestive heart failure. So the surgery was scheduled for early March of that year. Well, as the date approached, I experienced times of exhilarating faith mixed with times of anxiety. I struggled with not only the idea of open-heart surgery itself, but also the three months I would be out of work And without our primary paycheck. How were we going to pay the bills? What were we going to do? How would we make it? Well, the night before the surgery, I was on my knees, pouring out my heart uh, before the Lord. And at a particularly intense time of my prayer, the phone rang. On the other end was a pastor friend of mine, who I had not talked to literally in years and knew nothing of my surgery. So you talk about the Lord's perfect timing. Just at that time where I was facing this crisis and I was in this real intense moment in my prayers, the phone rings, this pastor friend is on the line, he prayed for me, he encouraged me, and he was actually there the next day as uh, I came out of surgery, as I woke up that afternoon, he was there, he was one of the first faces that I saw. Well, the surgery went well and an artificial valve was inserted to replace the the deformed one. In our next couple of months, I fervently sought the Lord, not only for healing, but also for his provision. And despite the inconsistency of my faith at times, the Lord miraculously supplied our need, and my heart and my chest slowly healed. And so here I am today. My artificial valve still ticking, Sounds like I swallowed an alarm clock at times, uh, much like the crocodile in Peter Pan. Uh, If you get close enough to me, you can hear the valve ticking. Well, in our passage this morning, we find a man named Nehemiah who met a real crisis in faith and immediately turned to the Lord in humble, fervent prayer. So open up your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, And as Jeff mentioned, we'll be using the ESV today. Now, the the crisis which prompted Nehemiah to seek the Lord in prayer was not a health crisis. It was not a financial crisis, but it was a national crisis. A crisis for his beloved country, Israel. In this series on prayer, we've defined prayer as a personal encounter with God. And so we find Nehemiah here encountering God in prayer as he pours out his heart before him and then watches and participates in God's mighty answer to his prayer. But what brought on this time of crisis for the nation of Israel? Well, in order to answer that, we're going to have to take a short Old Testament history lesson. So here we go. First of all, Because of Israel's chronic rebellion against God and against his law and because of the petty rivalries that continuously existed between the tribes of Israel, they experienced a division known as the divided kingdom, where the ten tribes in northern Israel made up the northern kingdom known as Israel. Uh, You see it on the map up on the screen. And then there were two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, who made up the southern kingdom also known as Judah, which is where Jerusalem was located. Well, in 722 B.C., uh, the Assyrians invaded northern Israel and destroyed the northern kingdom, destroyed those ten tribes, and that was God's judgment upon them uh, for their wickedness against him. And then about 150 years later, in 586 B.C., because of the rebellion of the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, also, uh, God raised up the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to invade Judah, where he destroyed the city of Jerusalem, where he destroyed the temple of God, and where he carried off to Babylon some of the brightest young men, such as Daniel, in order to reindoctrinate them in the ways of the Babylonians. And this carrying off of many of the people of Israel was known as the Babylonian captivity, which was prophesied by Jeremiah, To last 70 years. We read of Jeremiah's prophecy and God's promised restoration of the children of Israel in the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 29, and verses 10 through 14. Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. from which I sent you into exile." And so there you see that those well-known verses that are so often quoted are actually a fulfillment, God's fulfillment to Israel that he would restore them to their land after 70 years of exile. And so by the time of the writing of Nehemiah, the 70 years was coming to an end. And God began to move. Not only in the hearts of his people, like Nehemiah, but also in the heart of a pagan king named Cyrus, who had actually issued a decree to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And that's very important for us to understand because what that demonstrates for us is that God is sovereign over even the hearts of pagan world leaders, and he is able to move their hearts whichever way he wills. You know, we hear this stuff all the time in the news. Oh, so-and-so said this from this country. And oh, this leader from that country said that. And people tend to get kind of worked up. We need to remember, God is sovereign over the hearts of every world leader, including today, and he is able to move their hearts whichever way he wills. So we need to trust the Lord in this, and we can pray for even the most wicked of rulers that their hearts might be turned. Well, Israel's return from Babylon happened in three waves, with two waves of exiles already having returned to Jerusalem as we open the book of Nehemiah. But as Nehemiah chapter 1 opens, the news concerning uh, Jerusalem was still not good. So we read here in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, And its gates are destroyed by fire. And so even though progress had been made in rebuilding the temple, Jerusalem itself was still basically in shambles. But how does Nehemiah respond uh, to this bad news? Well, he responds the way all of us as God's people should respond in a time of crisis. We see his response beginning in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, As soon as he heard them, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so as we look at Nehemiah's example that he sets for us here in this first chapter, praying during a time of crisis, we will learn a lot about, first of all, his commitment, his absolute commitment to prayer, and then secondly, his posture in prayer. Not his physical posture, but the posture of his heart and soul as he encountered Almighty God. So let's look first of all at Nehemiah's commitment to prayer. As we've seen, prayer was his immediate response to this national crisis. He didn't organize a petition drive, he didn't organize some sort of political march, he didn't even start a GoFundMe page for the city of Jerusalem. Rather, he demonstrates his commitment to prayer by immediately taking his deep concern to the Lord God of heaven. As we will see, throughout this first chapter, Nehemiah demonstrated his faith by trusting in the faithfulness and the character of Almighty God. Even in chapter 2 and verse 4, where he appears before the king and the king asks him, Well, what are you requesting? It says that Nehemiah right there prayed to the God of heaven before he even made his request. He immediately went before the Lord in prayer. And so we learn from Nehemiah's example here to run as a first resort to our loving Heavenly Father in prayer at all times and certainly during times of crisis. As David writes in Psalm 46 and verse 1, God Is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Many of you have experienced that, haven't you? God is a very present help in the time of trouble. And He certainly was for Nehemiah, who immediately rushes into His presence. Well, not only do we learn about Nehemiah's commitment to prayer in this passage, we also learn, as we mentioned, the appropriate posture for prayer. Again, not physical posture, but the posture of our heart and soul as we come before God. We read again in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, obviously, there are times in our lives when all we can do in an emergency situation is just cry out to God for help. I was driving on a country road one night many years ago and and it was icy. The roads were icy and all of a sudden my car started to spin around really fast and obviously I was not sitting there going, well, how can I formulate a really good structured prayer right now? I'm going, help me, Lord, help me, Lord, help me, Lord, as I'm as I'm spinning around on that road. But typically been there, right? But typically our approach to God in prayer must not be like the employee who barges into his boss's office with no prior warning or even a knock. Rather, our posture before God as we come to him in prayer should be marked, first of all, by humility, as Nehemiah's was. As much as we delight in the knowledge that as Christians, God is our loving Heavenly Father, he is also, as it says later in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 32, he is the great the mighty and the awesome God. And so in light of all that God is, it is totally appropriate for us to take a humble posture in prayer. Nehemiah demonstrates this in his prayer, first of all, by acknowledging God for who he is. We actually see that in verse 5. He says, shortly after he begins his prayer, he said, O Lord God of heaven, the great, an awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And so here in verse five, we see that Nehemiah acknowledges God's greatness, His awesomeness and His faithfulness in this prayer. <clears throat> this brings to mind Chris's message to me a couple of weeks ago on the Lord's prayer, and how Jesus instructs us to begin this prayer with our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Or, our Father in heaven, may your name be treated as holy. And so, acknowledging God for who he is as we come before the Lord in prayer helps us to take a humble posture before him in prayer. And then, secondly, Nehemiah demonstrates humility in prayer by weeping and mourning for days before the Lord. In effect, he was pouring out his heart unto the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said that to pour out your heart before the Lord in prayer is to turn the vessel of your soul upside down in his secret presence and let your inmost thoughts, desires, sorrows, and sins be poured out like water. Have you ever had a time of prayer like that? where you've literally poured out your heart unto the Lord, where you turn the vessel of your soul upside down in his presence, pouring out your inmost thoughts, your inmost desires, your inmost sorrows, and your, and your sins out like water before him. Well, that's what we find Nehemiah doing here in Nehemiah chapter 1. He pours out his soul in great reverence great sorrow over sin, and in his belief in God's mercy and his mighty power. And so we must not see prayer as simply a casual conversation with God, although we do want to develop that sort of intimacy with him. But we must see prayer as a personal encounter with a God who is loving, who is merciful, who is gracious, who is holy, and who is awesome. Well, Nehemiah's posture of humility is revealed also in that he prayed and fasted before the God of heaven. Dan's talked about fasting in a couple of his messages. Ashley shared in in her seminar last Sunday night a lot of good information on fasting. But why fasting here? Why did Nehemiah fast before the Lord? Well, by abstaining from food for a season, Nehemiah was humbling himself even further before the Lord. David writes about fasting in Psalm 35 in verse 13 where he says, I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. And the fact that he said that he afflicted himself with fasting means that he actually humbled or even chastened himself. He was chastening his soul as he came before the Lord. And so in fasting, in one sense anyway, we really are chastening our souls as we fervently seek God for something like the salvation of a lost loved one or a greater love for God or a greater love and desire for holiness or a greater love for a lost world. These are things that we should fervently be praying about and even fasting and praying about before the Lord. And then sometimes people Chasten their souls in fasting before the Lord to seek an answer to prayer during a time of crisis as we find here with Nehemiah. And when God's people pray and fast, God often moves in mighty ways and the world takes notice. It was said of the great preacher John Knox of Scotland in the 1500s during the Reformation that Knox fasted and prayed so much that Queen Mary said that she feared his prayers, they were so powerful, more than all the armies of Scotland. So she feared the prayers of John Knox more than she feared all the armies of Scotland because she was Roman Catholic. She opposed the Protestant Reformation. And so the powerful praying and fasting of John Knox. And so like Knox, Nehemiah humbled himself before the Lord in fasting and prayer And God heard him and acted mightily on his behalf. Well, we also see Nehemiah demonstrating a humble posture of prayer uh, before the Lord by confessing sin. And we read that here in verses 5 through 7. So let me see here. It says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive. So Nehemiah humbles himself before the Lord in prayer by confessing his own sins, the sins of his family, and even the sins of the nation of Israel. And eventually, if we were able to move our way through Nehemiah to chapter 9, it's a great book to study if you've never studied it before. If, we, if you would look in chapter 9, you would see that the whole assembly of the people of Israel are confessing their sins before the Lord as God was working to restore and even to revive uh, the nation. So if we're going to see revival in America and in virtually every prayer meeting that I'm in in this church, somebody's praying for revival. And we need revival. We need revival in America. But there must first be, as we see in Nehemiah, repentance and confession of our sin before the Lord. Certainly, America needs to repent. We have committed great and grievous sins before the Lord. America needs to repent, but we need to also have repentance in the church. We need to examine our own hearts and our our souls and, and see where is it that I'm falling short of God's commands? Where is it that I'm maybe walking in disobedience? And the reason for this is, is that in times of revival throughout church history, they are always preceded by fervent prayer and repentance on the part of the people of God. And so that's the pathway, if you will, towards revival. So Nehemiah sets a great example for us here in that. Well, not only did Nehemiah demonstrate a posture of humility in prayer, he also demonstrated a posture of persistence in prayer, despite the many obstacles that he faced. As he comes before the Lord in chapter 1, it says in verse 6 that he prayed day and night, really exemplifying what it means to pray without ceasing. And if we had the time, again, to make our way through the book of Nehemiah, we would find him facing several obstacles along the way as he sought to lead these exiles back to and to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. These obstacles included the regional governors under the king of Persia who continued to seek to oppose Nehemiah and discourage Nehemiah in his his work to restore the walls and the gates of Jerusalem, but at each stage, Nehemiah responds in faith-filled prayer until the return from exile and until the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem were complete. And what this teaches us is that even when God answers prayer in our lives, say you've had a great answer to prayer, you're so thankful, God has opened a door, you're ready to move forward. Even when that happens, there still may be obstacles moving forward. In fact, there probably will be. Satan's not going to leave us alone, especially when he sees God working mightily in our lives. We are going to continue at times to face discouragements, disappointments, and roadblocks as we seek to live out God's will in our lives. But as we see with Nehemiah, if we continue to walk by faith, if we continue to persevere in prayer, if we continue to turn to the Lord at every point, we will ultimately walk in victory. And God will accomplish his purposes in our lives no matter how difficult the road might be at times. And it does get difficult at times, doesn't it? Well, as Nehemiah came before the Lord in this time of crisis in humble, persistent prayer, He then makes his request of the Lord in verses 8 through 11. We read here, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And God had done that. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them back to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And so in his request here in verses 8 through 11... Nehemiah appeals to the faithfulness of God to his promises. God had given them specific promises, and Nehemiah appeals to those promises. He actually reminds God, not that God needs reminding, but he reminds God of the promises that he'd already made concerning the restoration of the children of Israel if they came back to him. And God indeed shows here, as he always does, that he hears and answers prayer. He does grant mercy to Nehemiah in the sight of the king. As in chapter 2, we find the king granting Nehemiah his request to go and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, taking exiles back with him. And then God did grant Nehemiah success. And again, that the exiles were restored to Jerusalem. The walls and the gates of the city were rebuilt. And the people rejoiced again in the hearing of God's word and in the restoration of temple worship. So again, if we were able to go through Nehemiah, we would see wonderful answered prayer, answering the prayers of Nehemiah here in Nehemiah chapter 1. So God is absolutely faithful in fulfilling his promises, and he is faithful in answering the humble, persistent prayers of God of his people. As he did with my family during our time of crisis, during my sometimes up and down nature of my faith, I learned during that process, as I have many times, that God is long suffering, he's merciful, and he's gracious with us as we we work through those difficult times in our lives. So are you facing a crisis in your life as we sit here today? I can honestly tell you this, that the greatest crisis of all, greater than any crisis that we've mentioned so far, is if you're sitting here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ by faith as your Savior and Lord. That is a crisis. That is the greatest crisis of all. Just as Israel's sin had them separated from their homeland in exile, so too have your sins separated you from God. And in a spiritual sense, you are far from home. But there's a way home. And that way is Jesus. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Only Jesus gives you a way home from your spiritual exile. And that is, if you hear his call this morning to repent, to turn away from your life of rebellion against God, confessing your sin, and if you will receive by faith Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, believing that when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty in full for your sins and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, where he now offers you the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life, an eternal home at home there with Jesus. But again... If you're facing a crisis situation in your life as a believer in Jesus, and I know some of you are here in our church, uh, even as we speak, follow Nehemiah's example. Follow his absolute commitment to prayer and follow his example of posture in prayer of humility and then persistence in overcoming the obstacles that are before you. Prayer during a time of crisis Nehemiah sets a great example for us here let's go before him in prayer